I nearly lost my leg. And that was the end of drinking. Mm. And I then took the whole idea of being an alcoholic much, much more seriously. It is the most important thing in my life, because if I'm not sober, I don't have anything else. Rosie Boycott, now Baroness Boycott, reaches the parts that other peers can't reach. Her passions and reinventions range deep and wide. The original influencer and activist, she can be guaranteed to hold strong views on a variety of subjects, from food waste to feminism, from obesity to domesticity, motherhood and marriage, the environment or the legalisation of drugs. A true opinion former, she cut her editorial teeth as co-founder and editor of Spare Rib, the magazine that championed the emerging women's lib movement in the 1970s, before moving on as editor of Esquire, The Independent and The Daily Express. A self-confessed recovering alcoholic, a smallholder, a literary guru, a committed traveller and travel editor of the oldie, the Renaissance woman is enjoying her new role as a grandmother gives me great pleasure to welcome Rosie, who has often been an inspiration and mentor in my own life, to the third act. Baroness Boycott, you were made a peer in 2018. Yes. I think. That's such an honour. Many congratulations. Thank you. Has it changed your life at all? Yes, hugely. It's an extreme surprise when you finally get there. I applied for it like a job online. You literally go online and you say, how do I apply to the House of Lords? And you mm. find yourself at a long form and you apply like a job and you get references. And then finally, one day you find that you're in. I sit on the crossbench, which means we're not politically affiliated. You can't be a member of a political party, which is great. Perfect, yeah. And you get appointed. The people who like me who got appointed, we were the system that was set up under Tony Blair in 99, which meant that ordinary people, so to speak, non-politicians could apply because they had different kinds of expertise. And the expertise I had and still have Mm. is on food policy, food poverty, food health, food security, and the junction of food and climate change. One of the extraordinary things is it's the only place in the world where you don't feel old. You're the spring chicken. Or not? not quite, but I mean, the average age is yeah. something like six to seven, you see. So you are very much, I'm 71 now, and so you're very much in the kind of middle of things. It's also extraordinarily wonderful to be in a place where you don't have to worry about getting a job ever again because you can stay there until you retire. Until you drop down. Die. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not good to stay there until you die, and there are some people in there who are definitely dying. This is the culmination of an extraordinary career with <laughs> so many different hats you've worn. I mean, I have. the master of reinvention and you've been editor lots of times, beginning with the feminist... Spare rap, Rib. Spare Rib. 50 yes, years ago. Extraordinary. Then uh, author of three books, which I loved the last one about being a smallholder. You are a self-confessed alcoholic. I don't know if that counts as a hat, I suppose... I think it's a hat. Yes. I think it's important to talk about it. I talk about it in Parliament. Not often. You you do. Not often, but when it's appropriate. And I think that saying that you are makes a difference. Then I'll say it. Because I think, A, very few women do. And I think it's incredibly important that people can know that you can have been a, you know, I mean, I did some terrible things when I was drunk, that you can also then be okay, that you can get better. 
Yeah. And you can recover from it and become a baroness and sit in yeah. the House of Lords. I think in your naughty days, you ended up in jail in Thailand. I did. I was actually let out. And Without a criminal record? No, they dumped it on my boyfriend because, like most of the world, they're chauvinistic and they believe that the man probably was carrying the drugs, which was not true. It was an absolutely equal deal. But mm. suddenly, one night after I'd been in, we started off in a jail, then we got transferred inland to a, a women's prison and a men's prison. And then at night, I mean late, like nine o'clock at night, there was a sudden rattling of the doors and someone came and fetched me and said, you're free to go. And they popped me on the back of a motorbike and took me into the town. And the jail that my friend, who's called John Steinberg, was in, was in the middle of the town. I mean, right in the middle of the town. Yes, as in Little Joe, not as the son of... Son of, yes. Oh, right. The son of. And the next day, I went to see him in the prison. And he was... It was a terrible prison. But he had been adopted. I don't know if you've read or anyone's read. There's a book uh, called King Rat, written by J.G. Farrell. Oh, yes. It's a brilliant book, really, about jail in Southeast Asia during the war. And it's about how you have a guy who runs... There was this guy called Robert, and he had been to Oxford and got into trouble, and he'd been arrested. He was very clever, very good-looking, Malayan, and he was king rat of the prison. And he had read every Steinbeck novel, and he took Johnny under his wing. So he was sort of protected by the king rat. But then we went to the um, court, which was, again, out of town. It was sort of a very strange place. Robert was allowed to come to, and then... Disastrously, there was an Australian journalist wandering through who heard about this, and he also turned up at the court where we were all sitting around drinking coffee and waiting to see what was going to happen. And John said to him, you know, please don't write about this because, you know, just it'll give my stepmother and everybody such a kind of... Because John had died, Steinbeck Sr. had died. He'd died. Yeah, Yeah, he he died died in 68. 68. And this was five years later. And... Of course, this rat of a journalist did, of course, write about it. I, I had to telephone my mother, you know, reverse charge call all the way to Shropshire in the days when there were telephone calls, away, and tell her that I had been in jail, that I was now out of jail, and I was all right. It was one of those dreadful oh, phone calls right. because I, I had to preempt yes. the idea that it would tip up in the papers, which it didn't in the UK, yeah. but it did in the, in the US. It went all over the place. My goodness. And, and how did your mother react? Did she? Well, she was very calm and she started fussing about how much the phone call was going to be in the way that mothers do. So, which well, wasn't a long call. Darling, have you got enough money on you? No, no, no. You know, are you all right? You know, and didn't really know what to make of it. But I did deal with it. And then uh, not long afterwards, he was let out and then deported. And then we went and lived in America for a while and uh, we lived in a town in Colorado called Boulder with mm. a Tibetan guru called Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was very <laughs> off the wall. And, and actually, I look back on it and I think quite off the wall and also quite dangerous yeah. in the way that he scrambled people's heads yeah. and their emotions. And I mean, do you think there by the grace of God go I? I mean, the amount of times you have just, it's close... Close calls. Close calls. Why are you so attracted to pushing these boundaries and testing yourself? And is it just curiosity that drives you? 
Not sure. The curiosity is certainly part of it. I don't honestly know. My father had a mug, which he liked very much, a rather big pint mug, and it said, God grant me strength to catch a fish so large that even I, when telling of it afterwards, may never need to lie. And I think that idea was very stuck in my head, that I wanted big adventures and mm. big life. Mm. And I've always weirdly been much better at sort of shooting around and doing things than I have been about, so to speak, sitting still. And I don't have a desire anymore to do things that are physically tricky or physically scary. But I still feel that thing of you need to keep pushing the boat out mentally. But it's much calmer now. I mean... You do go through the, the alcoholism, which you know, I had up until I was 30. I mean, I had a lot of really bad scrapes. And I think a lot of times that things could have really gone very wrong. And, you know, then I was sober for a long time. Then I had a terrifically big, long relapse after leaving the Express. And mm. there were all sorts of things that weren't great. Being a newspaper editor makes you very, uh, it gives you a very weird sense of entitlement, I think. Mm. I look back on it and I think it's pretty unpleasant, really. And I had all sorts of job offers and things like that, but I, I didn't do them well and I didn't respect them properly. And I, I was out of sorts and I started to get drunk again. And it wasn't that I got drunk all the time. I just went on sort of periodic bench. Anyway, I managed to smash my car up and smash my foot. It took a long, long time to get better. I nearly lost my leg. <laughs> and that was the end of drinking. Mm. And I then took the whole idea of being an alcoholic much, much more seriously. It sort of became the most important, it is the most important thing in my life. Because if I'm not sober, I don't have anything else. So it has to live at the top of my priorities. Now I pay attention to it in a completely yeah. different way. I also, I do live on a day-to-day -day basis. I do not think about whether I'm going to ever have a drink again. I know when I first stopped, I thought, never drink again. Well, fine, you know, t -t 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 off down the street, singing along. This is easy. And it's not. Mm. It requires a different kind of mindset. So mm. I won't have a drink today. I'm 99% certain. But I'll kind of make up my mind about it tomorrow. I would never say to anyone, I'll never have a drink again. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, that's the, the AA method. It is. It's absolutely the AA way. And yeah. it does work. Yeah. So you don't really worry too much about what you can't control. No, much less. And I don't, in truth, think that much about the future. I mean, I think about the future in an environmental sense. And my daughter's just had twins, so I think about them. Congratulations. Thank you. But I, I think about what world they're going to go into. I feel like I'm sort of redoubling my efforts and mm. flailing around trying to think what you can do to try to make a difference. But I don't think about myself dying. I mean, I'm just I'm reading a book by Camilla Cavendish called Extra Time. Oh, yes. It's very good. And she sees, we're an ageing population, and she's talking about longevity, and she sees extra time as a time of opportunity, if you're fit enough, as, as a golden opportunity to do more things. But she says that society hasn't caught on or caught up with that idea. So if we're filling in little questionnaires that you do all the time, the last box is 65, as if nothing happens after 65. Basically, you know, you're a write-off. And she's trying to write this book to redress the balance, I suppose. And I suppose that's why we're doing this podcast as well. Yes. Because, um, because wisdom and knowledge should have as much currency as youth and tech and energy. But it doesn't yet in this country. No. But it's also difficult. I mean, there was a... 
I can't remember what it was that I was some very good piece that I was reading the other day about, or actually it's in um, Sarah Churchwell's book about the effect of Gone with the Wind on America, but she was talking about people like Biden, Nancy Pelosi, etc., actually becoming a real detriment in America because mm. they have so venerated mm. old age that you are actually sitting like a lid on a younger generation politically. And I think that is complicated. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's why things like the House of Lords are an interesting institution, because you're not meant to be speeding around there. You're meant to be working over a bill and going through lots of stages. And I mean, some bills go on for days. And I mean, there are arguments about single words that can go on for two or three hours, which are pretty healthy. People in there have got time to have read it really well, are quite happy to stay there for 10 hours debating a couple of paragraphs Good point. trying to get to Fair the end. Point. And it is what its yeah. strength is. And you're not going to do that at age 30. I mean, A, you're mentally not going to do it, but also you're sort of not going to be good at it. And I think there is a real strength. And, I mean, there are some extraordinary people in there that are absolutely contributing an incredible amount to society. You know, I find it very sad that people don't have things to do. I think it's, I'm completely with Camilla that we haven't quite. Yeah, and uh, broadcasting and, I mean, the obsession with the influencers, the youth. Oh, youth it's in, terrible. Uh, but, I mean, always when you work for, I mean, I'm part of the Hay Festival, you know, and it's the same old thing. How are we going to get young people? How are we going to get young people? And it was always the same with newspapers, wasn't it? But actually, we have much more money, us oldies, especially yeah. if we're in a place like this. Yeah, yeah, time, Incredible time buying power. Exactly. So one of the, the banners that you waved, obviously, in your youth with Spare Rib was the, the feminist banner. What's the state of um, womanhood now, do you think, in our society? And are you feeling optimistic about your grandchild, for instance? Well, some things make me really optimistic, and some things make me really not optimistic. You know, it's, life is loads better than it was 50 years ago mm. in pretty much every respect. But there are also things... I mean, I think the, the state of childcare, and, OK, this is something I'm, I suppose I'm thinking about a mm. lot, but it was a book written in 1972 called Motherhood by Anne Oakley. And a friend of mine who's an academic is redoing that survey that Anne Oakley did 50 years on and what you find is that we still live in a society where in a way it's kind of worse where no help is given to mothers I mean really nothing my daughter's just given birth to twins we were in UCH they were really good she had cesarean she's very healthy it was all tickety-boo came out but in terms of the backup that you get now from the state Absolutely nothing. Husband earns too much money to even get child allowance. Uh, The price of the local nurseries is off the Richter scale. Mm. There is nothing given to support. And you look at every other country in Europe, Mm. and the support is huge. And my sister married a Dane 60 years ago, I suppose now. I don't know, a long time ago anyway. And so she has five kids, which, as she says, I would never have had five kids if I'd lived in England. And they all were entitled to nursery, to schools, to transport, to just so much. And so much within the culture was about the state supporting mums and families to have kids and to look after them and not be so stressed they fall apart. 
whereas we absolutely do not do any of this. And it's the same, you know, I, I chair something called Feeding Britain. So one of the things we do a lot about is free school meals. And you're only entitled to a free school meal if your income is below £7,500 a year. Mm. Even Wales is 14000 and mm. Scotland gives you free ones for primary school kids. And it's so mean and it's really tough for women. And, and we, we both worked at, uh, on magazines and you were an editor at Esquire. But at first, for instance, I remember thinking, why couldn't they have just put a crash in, in one of the empty rooms? And, Absolutely. and it would have made life so much easier. I it know. would have worked better. Instead, I, I had to go down to three days a week. And, yep. And, you know, that bye-bye editorships. Well, really. no, I, I mean, I, I feel I've, sac- I've sacrificed a lot on the, on the road of not being there and and I look back on it and I think I was a single mum I had to work I had to earn money okay I did something in a job that meant that I often had to be out and all the rest of it was very time consuming Mm. but and you loved it I did love it so you were always pulled there yes you were always 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 pulled with Mm. a kind of guilt but I can also look back and I can think I could for instance when I was running Esquire say I could have said, I'm just not working after lunch on Wednesdays, yeah. every Wednesday. Yeah. You know, I have the power in a way yeah. to do it. And if mm. if the culture had somehow exactly. been better about mm. looking at you as yeah. a mother as yeah. well as a worker, and that's somehow I, you leave, you have to leave the mother bit behind at the door. That's right. That's so wrong. I completely agree with you. You know, we talk about equality, but we haven't got that. We yet. haven't got it, no. you know. And actually, it's so, it's so fundamental, yeah. that bit. Yes. You know, that in a way you can sort of look at everything else and say, well, actually, if that bit's wrong, everything mm. else is going to be wrong too. Mm. And so on one level, I think we've got nowhere on one level because we still expect, and the same is true at the other end of life about women being carers. But I guess I, I feel more strongly about the whole thing of if you want women to be in the workplace, if you want, then we support the notion of motherhood. And mm. there's still a kind of weird fear And I think, I don't hear this argument very often. I mean, we do have these debates and there's lots of good feminists in the House of Lords and we all sort of say that, but it isn't a kind of big rallying cry. And you're slightly seen as, well, you can't sort it out. It's sort of your fault Mm. that you can't somehow get this right. And it's not. No, because it's got to be society. It's got to be a way of thinking. We've got to respect parents, respect mothers. They do a great job, but you have to value them. Absolutely. And so therefore help them along the way. Absolutely. You just shouldn't have to even think about it. No, exactly. I really, really agree with you on that. So, I mean, you are the master of reinvention, as we were saying. (laughs) And when you had the crisis when you hit 50 after you lost the job... I wanted to know really whether it was because you felt that you were defined too much by your work and if since then you feel that there are other things that make you you. Have you moved on from the idea of work being what you're about? Yes and no. I mean, certainly I had an absolute thing of, you know, work was very, very much what I defined myself by and it was my sort of addiction in a way it's a it's very easy to become a workaholic not an expression I like but it's an expression I sort of understand and I guess I will always work do I feel defined by it now no but then it's, it's sort of weird work in that I don't do anything I don't want to do at work 
so it doesn't have quite the same feeling of it's difficult to, it's difficult to describe it doesn't feel the same no it absolutely doesn't feel the same it doesn't drive you maybe in the same way that yeah you, and if if it went tomorrow mm. well it went tomorrow from my point of view it's like being in a a you can do the things you care mm. about but it's also like being in a university that i never mm. went to every day you learn new things yeah. and in a way you're you're there to learn more about what you're interested in mm. and you're given every that's why to me it's the ultimate privilege you're given every opportunity <laughs> to <laughs> learn more about what you want to know so i don't know are you defined by learning uh, i think it's an interesting thing i mean mm. i always have more things to read than i have time mm. for more mm. things to listen to and yes that is really part of me you're plugged in and engaged and I love well. it. Yeah. And one of your um, hats was smallholder, wasn't it? With your pigs. Do, yes. have, you, have you given the pigs up? Yes. But that took me on to learning about food and mm. the importance of food and the uh, actually the whole nine yards of food. And mm. That took me into food poverty and unhealthy food and the way the food companies work. And yeah the climate implications of the food system. It's good because, you know, you have big, clear enemies and some big, clear solutions, but in fact, it's also terribly difficult and complicated. And it is, and it's... Have we got anywhere since you started as Boris's food czar? Have, we, have there been any major steps in getting rid of sort of waste, for instance? Yes, I mean, definitely... Well, in the UK, we mm. have got rid of quite a lot of food waste. But by no means all. It's also true that in that time, the numbers of food banks have massively increased. What we do a lot in Feeding Britain, though, we do the social supermarkets where you sell the food, but you sell it for around about 20p in the pound. Mm. And we get that through donations, through you know, misorders at the top of the food chain that come down, and suddenly there's a pallet of anything you can think of. That's extraordinary. But isn't also part of the problem that we don't know as a nation how to, I mean, people who grew up in the war, I suppose, knew how to make a, a piece yep. of meat last stretch or week. Maybe that should be taught in schools. Well, the schools to... are meant to be, uh, your, I mean, the kids should be able to leave, to be able to, should be able to cook five savoury dishes. Yeah, that's right. But in fact, of course, schools don't have the money or the bandwidth. Yeah. And so... You know, all these things, and you see it when you're in any kind of, mm. any sort of bit of government, you know, it always mm. goes back to, oh, well, get the local council to do it, or let's let's get the school to agree to do it. And you, you realise you're just layering more stuff on a school or a local council, and they don't have the money. In fact, in again, Camilla Cavendish's book, she said that longevity, people who live longer, it's not about money, it's about education, basically. You have to understand how to... How to live. How to live, how to look after you, how yeah. to be engaged. And speaking of which, how do you keep fit? You look incredible. Uh, I can cold water swim. In the sea? In the sea and in the River X and in the Hampstead Pond. And we're just digging a pond in the field. I love cold water. I now only have cold showers. I walk, I garden, you know, you I do Pilates twice a week. You eat healthily? yes. Yes. You get rid of your waste. <laughs> you recycle your waste. Compost. Compost, yeah. Endless compost. Yeah. My husband is a mad composter. I mean, he's really keen on compost. I think, like, everybody, just this winter, I I really turn off lights now mm. all the time, turning them off, turning them off. Hot water bottles, no heating. 
you know, extra jumpers, we can all save an awful lot. And we should. It's a good, it's mm. good culture. It's the same with kind of clothes. I mean, we all consume too much. We do. And I, I find that that's certainly something that has got less with me as I've got older. Yeah. I have much less. I don't get a buzz out of things. I completely understand the buzz of things. Mm. Um, but now I, I tend to look at lots of shops and you think, look at all this mm. stuff. Mm. And you want to scale your life down, yeah. simplify Well, I've got enough stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's quite nice stuff, I, mm. but I just don't need any more. Mm. And how important do you think it is to leave a legacy? What do you mean by legacy? Let's put that another way, a sense of achievement. What it was your greatest achievement? In fact, I think you've already told me what your greatest achievement is. Well, having my daughter, not giving up, I suppose. I suppose that's what I think. I think don't give up. I mean, you know, right now, quite frankly, the political situation looks really bleak, but mm. it makes you sort of redouble your effort, mm. even if you're not quite sure, mm. as I feel exactly now, not quite sure what to do. Mm. You just keep doing just different done. things. Yeah. And hoping. And the trickle effect. Mm. And and I have a really different sense about how you make political difference now. Because when you edited a newspaper, when one edited a newspaper, you could achieve change overnight if you edited, when I edited The Express, not true of The Independent or The Independent on Sunday, but certainly The Express, The Mail, The Sun, The Mirror, those kind of papers, you can stick a headline on and you can change government policy by the following morning. It's extraordinary. I mean, you are much, much more powerful than a backbench MP. Um, but where I am now, I think of it as putting bricks in walls. Mm. And if you think about what Marcus Rashford was able to do mm. with the school meals mm. thing, that was a culmination of a lot of us, lots and lots of us, having painstakingly over years built that wall. Mm. Solidly. So when Marcus arrived and said, I think we should do it, it was mm. oven ready, as mm. Boris could have said. It was there to do. So you you prepare the ground so mm. that you get to a point where the case is, it's so obvious it has to be made. So if in with climate change, for instance, which seems so insurmountable, and how on earth can any of us do anything to change the way to, Talk, to hold speak, this? Yeah. You know, shout. Just Carry on, yeah. yeah. I think it's very, very scary. And I, it's not a question of whether you lose or win, because I don't think you can think about it like that. We'll definitely overshoot the 1.5 degrees. We'll definitely get sea level rise. We are definitely going to get massive refugee crises. But there are also parts of the world that will change in good ways. Um, so I don't... I, today I'm feeling not optimistic, but, you know, relatively mm. that this is a crisis, but we're also fairly ingenious. Mm. And politically and from the campaign trail, is there anything that you're particularly proud of that you've done? Well, I, yes. I mean, I think I've done a lot in feeding Britain in terms of ways, you know, I mean, I kind of made all the social supermarkets happen. I've done the food buses. I've done, I did all the food plans for cities that went all around the world. Um, yeah. And I know that I've changed the dialogue in the Lords. And what about Riz LaRosie? Is she still, is she still there? Do you still think that we should uh, legalise cannabis? Actually, I think we should legalise drugs. Mm. And one of the reasons I think that 
is, I mean, I think it for many, many reasons, but one of them is that I'm a trustee of the Hay Festival and I'm a director of the Hay Festival in Colombia. And I've been almost every year. And when you go and look at what a disaster cocaine has caused to countries like that, and you see, and it makes me so angry with people who kind of say that they're cool and hip and they buy cocaine here. And you go and follow that back. Mm. And it's a nightmare for those countries mm. and for Mexico. And you look at the, if you, if you approach the drug problem and said, you know, Henry Marsh's famous expression, do no harm or do as little harm as you can. Let's look at it. It's harm reduction across the world. Mm. Deaths. Where are the deaths? Uh, where's the destruction? You're always going to have some percentage of a population that gets addicted. Mm. Alcohol, drugs, mm. I mean, it's going to happen. Just, mm. We just need to get real about it. But the price of the illegality is horrendous. Mm. I think you should um, go back into politics. <laughs> <laughs> and so n knowing what you know now, all these lessons learned, what would, advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Don't worry so much. Mm. Just don't worry quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were to think of a piece of music uh, for your exit. My or, funeral? Yes. Oh, or... I'd have thank you for the days. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that would be a really lovely way to go as well. Living life at full throttle. Thank you so much, Rosie. Boycott. If you've enjoyed today's show, you can hear more episodes by clicking follow wherever you're listening to this or simply searching The Third Act on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. And if you think your friends would love to listen, please tell them about us. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and Holly Fisher and made possible by Orion's, luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather and I can't wait to join you next week for another episode of The Third Act. <laughs>